Psalm 100. It reads, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. And then please join me for another moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all that you are to us. We know you to be a good God with everlasting faithfulness, with everlasting love. We know you to be a gracious God because of what we found in Christ. The fact that we gather here today celebrating the salvation we've received in him. We know you to be a merciful God because you did this and extended this gift in spite of our own sinfulness. And so we thank you that we get to know you as all of these things and that you've even offered and extended the opportunity for us to know you as our own personal Lord and Savior. And so we acknowledge this morning that you are God. There's none like you, not in heaven, not on earth. You alone are supreme over all other things and all other beings. And so God, I pray that you would help us to lift our eyes and our hearts in worship of you. And all that we do, might we go throughout life with a posture of worship, and praise, and thanksgiving because of us knowing that you're worthy of it. God, how can we know you truly and not have lives of thanksgiving and praise? That's what I pray and ask that you would make us more wise this morning about what it looks like to live in this way. I pray that you convict us for our failures to give you the praise and thanks that you're worthy of receiving. And that you, by your spirit, God, would continue to edify us, build us up, refine us, mold us into the image of Christ, and help us to live lives that truly do depict the thanksgiving, the praise, the worship that Psalms like Psalm 100 call us to. I got to also pray for myself in this moment. I recognize that I'm in need of your help. Standing here, I shouldn't be relying upon my own strength or understanding, but I should be fully relying upon you, God. And so I avail myself to you and ask that you would help me to rely in a way that would be pleasing and honoring and worshipful unto you. Would you use me? Give me clarity of thought, clarity in my speech, and allow me to preach your word in a way that would expose what you've said so that your people's hearts would be pierced and so that we leave this place more thankful bolder in praise, seeking to live more holy lives for the glory of your great name. Would you make up for any human flaws or inadequacies that could get in the way of the proclamation of your word? Do what only you can, God. And allow your word to go forth to result in life change, whether that be 
growth in love for you that's already existent or a newfound love for you through repentance and faith. I pray all of this for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. So we're currently in a series called Summer in the Psalms. I think I can speak for any of us who've been here consistently to say that this has been a really sweet series, which has been allowing the Psalms to do what the Psalms do. Uh, They show us how it is that we as God's people can relate to God and our understanding of him and our obedience to him. But as we've continued to say throughout this series in Psalms, the Psalms uniquely also help us to to, to understand what it looks like to, to feel in our relationships to God. They've got a unique way of modeling how we should feel in relation to God and his character as we walk through the various seasons in life. And a few weeks ago, we came to Psalm 100. A few weeks ago, it was, it was initially my intent uh, to preach all five verses of this psalm, but uh, once I got into it and, and, and kind of saw how the sermon was taking shape, I realized that there was so much packed into just a handful of verses that we actually needed to take Psalm 2 in two sermons instead of one. And so we looked at the first three verses a few weeks ago, and this morning we returned to Psalm 100, primarily to look at verses 4 and 5. And it's here in verse 4 that we see the theme of this psalm be stated explicitly. Psalm 100 kind of carries this this thrust of thanksgiving. Uh, The intent behind it is to influence within us feelings and actions of thanksgiving to God in light of what we know about God. And I've told you all a few times since we've been in the Psalms that those superscript titles that are sometimes written in small font above the psalm are actually helpful to us. Uh, They were there with some of the earliest manuscripts. Not every psalm has one, but with all the ones that do, they give us helpful context to stuff like uh, who wrote the psalm or what a psalm was used for, what the circumstances were surrounding a psalm being written. And if you look in your Bibles at the one included with Psalm 100, you see that it simply says a psalm of thanksgiving. That's helping us to understand this theme with which Psalm 100 was written. And it was implied in verses 1 through 3. It was never explicitly stated, but we could kind of tell that there was a bent toward gratitude and and thanksgiving in those verses. Well, we get here to verse 4, and the author does say it explicitly. We see these words, thanksgiving and thanks. Both of them are used in this verse. But here's the thing. In coming to verse 4, we obviously come off the heels of verse 3. And I think that part of the basis for us to do what we're commanded to do in verse 4, which is to give thanks to God, I think that's rooted in what we saw back in verse 3. Like I said earlier, a few weeks ago, we studied the first three verses, and they taught us that some of the sounds and activities of thankful praise to God, to kind of reference the, the, the sermon's title, they include things like shouting with praise to the Lord, serving the Lord in all that we do, singing to the Lord with joyful songs, and acknowledging that the Lord, God, he is indeed the Lord of all. And then we talked about what it means for us to consider and rejoice in the fact that we belong to and are made by God. So glance back at verse 3 real quick. Look, look, just, Just look at what it says. He made us, and we are his. His people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, a few weeks ago, we read this and and, and kind of discussed a number of good, comforting implications that come from it, right? Like, praise be to God that we're God's sheep, and we get the privilege of dwelling in God's pastures. But on the flip side of that same coin, friends, the acknowledgement of our sheepliness and God's shepherdliness is also a call for us to admit and rest in the fact that we don't belong to ourselves, but we made ourselves. It's in that God made us. We belong to God. We're his. We're God's sheep. God made us. 
Psalm 139 carries the same idea, right? He, meaning God, knit us together in our mother's wombs. And now this is good news. Like it will always be good news for those of us who receive it rightly. But the reason that I'm having us to kind of look back here as we move into verses four through five, where we're commanded to give thanks and have thanksgiving, is because I believe one thing that prevents us from having a posture of thanksgiving toward God is the failure to realize that we haven't made ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We aren't self-made. We didn't go and find our own sheeply pastures. We didn't create the grass that we graze on. But God, he did it all. He himself has done it all. And so before we move into considering what it means to have thanksgiving and give thanks to God, let's first establish this foundational understanding that we must thank God for any good thing we have, because at the end of the day, we're nothing more than sheep that God has chosen to be a good shepherd to. And so might we offer thanksgiving and praise. God made us, and we're his, the text says. And all of us know that he could have done with us a long time ago what our sin and rebellion would have justified him doing. But in his loving kindness, he instead does with us what his grace and mercy leads him to do. He made us, and we're his, and therefore any good we experience, we experience because God made us, we're his, and in his loving kindness, he's choosing to show grace and mercy to us. This is true for both the Christian and the non-Christian. Like whether you acknowledge it or not, any good you have, you have because God has good that he is willing to give. So without a doubt, church, like, like definitely, let's be thankful. But before we even get to verse 4 and learn about Thanksgiving, let's remember what verse 3 had to teach us about first being God-made. We're God-made people. And as we remember this, let's lay down these self-made mentalities, shall we? Like when you're in the workplace trying to climb the corporate ladder, don't forget that the hands and feet with which you climb are hands and feet that God made. To all of my students, when you go back to school in a few weeks, you may study hard, you may get the good grades, but remember that the mind with which you think is a mind that God has made. If you're an athlete, I keep balling hard. Go hard, ball out as they say. But don't forget that the hands with which you throw a ball or shoot a ball, all those things that you can do, you do it because those hands, God made them. I mean, all of us and all that we do, the reason we sit down and, 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 and prepare to partake of a meal by stopping to pray for it is because it's good to pause and give thanks. We want to deliberately acknowledge that the meal, the bought it, and the body that worked for that money, all of it, God made. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're a mom who's momming, a builder who builds, a friend who's friendly, a preacher who preaches, a musician, where, where you at, broken? Musician who musics, whatever we want to call it. No matter what you do, no matter what you are, you get to do and be, not because you made yourself to, but because God made you to. And see, the human experience tells us that fixing our mentality away from being a self-proclaimed, self-made individual to being a self-proclaimed, God-made individual, that sets us up to then have thanksgiving unto God. Like when we truly recognize that we're God-made, we begin to see all that we actually have to thank God for. So what is it, church? What do you have to be thankful for? I mean, think about it. Like, like, like what is it that, that is in your life that you could give the Lord thanks for? 
We could be here all day long and just go on listing things, couldn't we? Or verse 4, now that we can finally go there, it tells us that knowing of the many different things we have to give thanks for, we're to enter God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and to give thanks to him and bless his name. The outline for verses 4 through 5 is the same as it was for verses 1 through 3. Uh, that's because this psalm basically shows us the same two simple observations twice. It shows us the praise we must give, and then it shows us a reason we've been given to offer this praise. So there's a praise we must give, which is shown here in verse 4, and then verse 5 lays out a reason we've been given to offer the praise. The praise we must give and a reason we've been given to offer this praise. Verse 4 tells us that the praise we must give, it looks like us entering God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, and then us giving thanks to him and blessing his name. When the psalm mentions gates and courts here, we need to kind of tease out how this would have been understood to the immediate audience. See, while our Western understanding of gates is probably most associated with privacy, in an ancient Near Eastern culture where wars were so prevalent, gates were also associated, they were associated with privacy, but they were also associated with safety and defense. And so when this psalm paints the picture of God granting access to come into the temple's gates, it carries with it the implication that, one, we're no longer enemies of God's to be defended against, and two, We're safe with God once we're on the inside. And the invitation here, it doesn't just hold out entrance into the gates, but there's this obvious assumption that once you're across the gates, you're inside the courts. The psalm is referencing the gates and courts of the temple. That's the place that God's presence filled and that his people went to worship him at. And it had this layout where there were different courts or or, or different kind of courtyard type places And they were associated with different degrees of God's presence, and only certain people were permitted to enter certain courts. Well, outside the gates was a court that the Gentiles, or those who weren't of God's people, they were permitted to be in that court. But notice about the text that the the invitation here is, is twofold. Enter his court on the inside of the gates. Now, whichever court the psalmist is talking about, the invitation to it carries this presumption that for those who lived during the day of the temple, When they got there, when they got into those gates and into that court, they would be in God's presence. It carries this presumption that when they crossed those gates, they'd be at a more intimate place with God than they were on the outside of those gates. And see, that, beloved, would have given them plenty of reason to go into those gates, to to enter into God's courts with thanksgiving and praise. It was plenty of reason. And I mean, let's not forget that back in verse 1, we saw that this invitation was extended to the whole earth. Remember that? This means that even those who are complete strangers to God and his people, they could accept this invitation if they became worshipers of God and one with his people. This was grand news for them. They could be grafted into the family of God, the, the people of God they could become part of. Like the one true God of the world would receive them and they were invited to cross his gates and enter his courts, finding safety and no longer being his enemy and being granted intimacy with him who created them. Like if they knew what was good for them, They wouldn't have had to think twice about accepting this invitation. And I want to say to you today that you too have an invitation that gives you reason to go to God's presence with thanksgiving and praise. But do you know that your invitation is even better than what we see here? See, what we read here is is, an Old Testament invitation. Like, Like, yes, they were invited to the temple. This was a huge deal, but it was still a temple, which meant that they had to go to a particular place to be in God's presence. And then once they got there, they could experience intimate communion and worship with God, but there were still a lot of rituals and and sacrifices and all of these rules they had to follow in order to reach a state of intimate worship. And then even in their worship, 
Most people were only permitted to enter a certain court, so there were limitations on how close they could get to God's presence. But friend, do you know today that there is no more temple? There is no required work or animal sacrifice to worship God, and there isn't a distant court where God sits awaiting only the entrance of priests. What we have, we, we, we have a great high priest in Jesus who's not only gone into the most intimate place himself, but he's done the sacrificial works for us. He's done away with the physical temple, and he now builds us into a spiritual temple. And according to Matthew 27, even the veil which shielded the holy place where God's presence was most felt, it was torn because of Christ. And so he, as our great high priest, he says, I'm going into the presence of God, and you, friend, you can come with me, and let's go worship. That's what we have. That's the invitation we find in Christ. It's not a physical temple, no physical courts. It's the presence of God that is even richer than what his Old Testament people experienced, and it's all because of Jesus. For them, it was an invitation to go across the temple gates and to be in the temple courts. And there they'd find safety, inclusion, and intimacy. For us, it's an invitation through Jesus Christ to go across the metaphorical spiritual gates, to be in the metaphorical spiritual courts where we'll find safety and protection by God, inclusion among the people of God, and intimate communion with God. I mean, we don't have time to unpack this fully, but I do think it's worth pointing out that an invitation of this sort, friends, it beckons us to, to stop seeking the safety and, and, and inclusion and intimacy in places and people that are other than God. His presence is where we must go to have those longings be filled. Better yet, because of Jesus, his presence is where we can go to see that those longings are filled. And like I said earlier, this is plenty of reason for us to accept this invitation and go to God's presence with thanksgiving and praise. That's how the psalmist says we should go. And so is that the way we go, beloved? Do we go to God's presence in this way? Like, do we live with a conscious awareness that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can have access to intimate fellowship with the God who made us? And then does that conscious awareness drive us to be a people of thanksgiving and praise? Earlier I asked what it was that we had to be thankful for. Well, even someone who thinks they have anything, they don't have anything to be thankful for. Even those people, they've got this. They've got the fact that there's salvation in Jesus that they can be thankful for. And that exists to all of us, the invitation for the whole earth. We can all accept this and know that there's salvation in Christ. And so might we accept it? And might we be a people of thanksgiving and praise? And I mean this not only for us as individuals, but might even we as Pioneer Church be a corporate people of thanksgiving and praise? Like we take God's presence with us whenever we go as individuals, and then when we come together, we gather as a communal people who carry God's presence. I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it. This is, this is why our Sunday morning gatherings are so contributive to our faith and life together. Like we truly believe that when we come together and do all the stuff that we do as a church family, God uses that as a supernatural means of grace to sustain us and grow us and build us deeper and stronger in our faith. I've already pointed out that we don't have a, a physical temple with gates and courts like those of the Old Testament, but the closest thing we do have to it is when we come together at this time every week and gather as the people of God. 
we're providing a picture of the new spiritual temple right now by being together. And so in the same way that they were charged to enter the temple with a certain disposition and, and with a certain intentionality about thanksgiving and praise, I want to charge you to also be intentional about the way we come to our gatherings. Like, have you ever thought about the fact that it's, it's probably good to start preparing for church before you get to church? You say, well, how, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. Got a few reasons for you or a few ways you can do it. How about making sure you get to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday night so that you can actually be energized to be with God's people on Sunday morning? Or what about just reading the sermon passage ahead of time and then coming with, with expectation for the Lord to speak through it? Asking Pastor Brogan, hey, what songs are we going to be singing? I want to start looking them up on YouTube so that I can be priming my heart to rejoice in those songs when I'm with the people of God. If you're teaching in the children's ministry, look your lesson over, prepare well, pray for God to use you to plant gospel seeds within those kids' minds. Or here's one that, 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 that just, just may step on some toes even. Just be on time. <laughs> Maybe if you get here early, you could like fellowship and catch up with folks. Check in on your brothers and sisters. Maybe pray on your drive over here. Or when you eat breakfast, like, like, Lord, would you use this gathering to encourage and build up your church today? And then some of you might just need to eat breakfast so that you and everybody else around you aren't distracted by your stomach growling during the sermon. If somebody's stomach growls today, don't look at them. Just, just like, we don't want to do that. I think y'all get the point, though. All of these are small, practical ways that we can prepare ourselves to gather as the church body. And in a way that, that best sets us up to enter with thanksgiving and to enter with praise, not only as individuals, but as the corporate family that God has made us into. Practical ways for us to prepare in that. The psalmist moves on to give us another exhortation to be thankful. And alongside this exhortation, he says for us to, to bless God's name. Look at that last sentence in verse four. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, this sentence is, is essentially just repeating what we've already been told to do with the first sentence in verse four. Uh, this is what is known in regard to poetry and especially like old Hebrew poetry like the Psalms. This is called parallelism. This means that there are two parallel sentences that, that, that are used to state the same thing for the sake of reinforcing or furthering the same idea that's at hand. And so in this case, give thanks to him is reinforcing the charge for us to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And that second phrase about blessing his name is a reinforcement to the first charge about being in his courts with praise. But I do want us to kind of unpack this a little bit because, I mean, it's just a weird phrase, right? Like, bless his name? How do you bless God? And then, not only that, but how do you bless his name? Well, it's actually pretty simple. The word bless is a word that has multiple meanings. It's not only the meaning that often comes to mind when we hear it used and, and we think of people receiving blessing, but it also means to to bend the knee before someone or to worship or to express praise to someone or even to speak of or wish for someone's good. Uh, we've got plenty of English words that carry multiple meanings and bless is one of those, even though we don't tend to think about it in that way. And so here, when the psalmist says to bless God's name, he's charging us to express praise to God's name. But now why his, his name and not God himself? Like what's, what's all of that about? Well, that's because the ancient Hebrew understanding of names was much different than the way we understand them in English. 
A name was understood to be directly tied to someone or something's existence. It, it was seen as a, a stated conveyance or revelation of the very nature of what or whoever it was that bore the name. Uh, Timothy Faraby uh, has a passion to see people, to see, uh, <laughs> I get the words deaf and blind mixed up. That's really embarrassing. Um, he wants to see deaf people be reached for the Lord. And so he's learned sign language. That, that'd be helpful because blind people wouldn't be able to see sign language, obviously. But he wants to see deaf people be, be, be reached for the Lord. And he was telling me the other day that in sign language, people's sign names are often the first letter of their written names, followed by a sign that indicates some unique characteristic about them. And so I think names would, would probably work something along the lines like uh, T for Terry, who smiles a lot. You do like a smile sign. Or G for Gerald, who's tall, and you would show whatever tall is in, in sign language. Like that's, that's the way names work in sign language. And in a similar way, the Hebrew understanding of names is an understanding that to know someone's name meant not only that you knew how they were identified or called, but that you also knew about the person who bore the name. Like you knew things about them, you knew them as a person. When you knew the name as an identifier, you also knew of the nature and character of the person on whom the identifier was placed. This is why Names were such a big deal in the Old Testament and why God oftentimes would actually change people's names and give them a new name when they were entering new seasons in life. It's also why the psalmist who wrote Psalm 9 writes in Psalm 9 verse 10, those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. And to know his name and that psalm meant that you could trust him because you knew his character. And here in Psalm 100, to bless his name means to give him praise because you know him, you know his character, and you know that he's worthy of any praise and blessing that you could ever offer. Is to know that he's worthy of us being in his presence with praise and thanksgiving. He's worthy of it. You, know, you may say, well, well, how do we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked that too, because the psalmist helps us with that in verse 5. Verse 4 has been us looking at the praise we must give to God, and verse 5 tells us that a reason we must give it is because the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. So listen, friends, the reason God is worthy of us blessing his name is because he's good. We did this last week, and, and, and this week the psalm does it for us. So, so won't y'all tell me when he, I'm going to tell you when God, that God is good, and you tell me when he's good. Can we do that? God is good? And all the time? Amen. He is good. All the time and all the time, he is good. Verse 5 holds this idea out plainly for us to just kind of simply see. But now I'm not naive to think that there aren't some who read a statement like this and have questions and doubts to kind of bubble up within them. Like we're living in a day where society is, is making it harder and harder to discern what goodness truly is. And you see the word love is also mentioned there in verse 5. It says God has faithful love, which endures forever. Well, these two words, good and love, are words that the world is wanting to kind of make hazy and, and cloudy and difficult to understand in a way that confuses us about who God is and how life is to be lived. They're saying, like, 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 surely God can't be good because he lets this happen, and he punishes people, and he can't be loving because love means to always be accepting and to never deny anybody what they want for themselves, or to feel like never deny anyone what they feel like they should have. Well, the problem with that kind of thinking is that it starts with man. You see, if we lean into our feelings and our desires and, and have that be the starting place, what we end up doing is projecting our will for the world onto God. So we, say, we come to God and we say, hey, God, 
based upon what I feel and, and, and the personal experiences I've had, this is what good is. This is what love looks like. And so your character needs to line up with these two things if you're going to call yourself loving and good. Let's not fall into that way of thinking, friends. Man isn't the starting place. The reason we can know that God is objectively good is because he is the creator who has created the standard for what good is. When the psalmist writes this this kind of pointed statement about God's goodness and love in verse 5, he's still got verse 3 in mind. Remember, the Lord is God. He made us. We are his. Like if we were the ones setting the standard for goodness and love, we would be God's. And the world would be a really scary, jacked up place. And so thankfully we're not. We're not the ones who set the standard. And so the proper thing for us to do is to look to God's word, to see what he's revealed about his character, his will, what he deems as good and loving. Let that be the starting place and then live with confidence that the Lord is indeed good and his faithful love endures forever. That's what the apostle Paul encourages us to do later in Colossians 2.8 when he writes that we should be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. He says Christ is the starting place. Like he didn't deny that the elements of this world might make goodness and love hard to understand, but he said if you look to those, then you'll be taken captive to deceit. But if you look to Christ, you'll find the fullness of God's nature in bodily dwelling. He says you'll find that the Lord is good and faithful love that endures forever. Forever. And like, isn't that astounding? Forever. That's how long God's love is. We can't even like legitimately comprehend foreverness. You know, we got this word eternity and, and, and we throw it around to try to make ourselves sound smart and theological. We don't actually comprehend what that means. It's like, well, what is eternity? So, like, well, I, I know it came from that way and it didn't start anywhere. And I think it's going to go that way. And like, it's not going to have an end ever. <laughs> that's eternity. Like, that, that's what we got. That's our working definition of what eternity is. And now that definition is sufficient for our time-bound minds that that need a reference to time in order to understand timelessness, but that's not a full understanding of what forever means. It's not. The words forever and eternal are words that have to take time into consideration in order to explain a concept of period that doesn't take time into consideration. And this ultimately shows us that it's pointless to try to place a timetable on God's goodness and love. Like whenever you try to place a timetable on God and his love, you find that there is no timetable. God having forever love means that his love exists outside of time. That's how long it is. That's the faithful love that the psalmist says we should be thankful for and praising about. It's a a never-ending, eternal, always enduring, faithful love from God. And you know what else? It's a love that is coupled with his goodness. Did y'all notice this word and in the passage? I don't know if I've ever seen a better use of the word and. God is good and his faithful love endures forever. Friends, that's a huge deal for us. This means that we can always count on God. Not only is he good, but he's good and he's got never-ending love that compels him to act on his goodness for the good of his people. It's no matter what you walk through, you can trust that God's goodness and his love are either already there being shown or it will be made clear in the end. Do you believe he's good, church? Do you you really believe God? We say he's good when? And all the time he's what? He's good. This means that whether your days are good or bad, you can trust that God is good. And even when your money is funny and your change is strange, you can still know that God is good. 
And, and, and in those days when, when your fridge is full and your wallet's got weight, you better know that that's only because God is good. On those tough days when, when sadness stalks, depression dwells, hurt hovers, lowness looms, temptation tempts, prominence creeps, no matter what comes, we got to trust that God is good. And sometimes we'll see that without question. There are times when, when peace is plentiful, happiness is happening, smiles are steady, and it's all because God is good all the time. That won't ever change, friends. He's good. His faithful love endures forever, and his faithfulness will be with his people for all generations. And I'm getting ready to close, but do you know what that last statement calls us to? That, that, that thing about God's faithfulness being with his people for all generations. This means that we should be making God's goodness and his love and his faithfulness known to the future generations. Like we have this praise that, that, we, that we must give and the reasons we've been given to offer this praise, not only for the sake of us, but also for the sake of those who will come from us. You see, our worship of God with, with thanksgiving and praise is instructive to the coming generations. And so to my parents, man, man, press on in evangelizing and discipling your children. Church, let's press on in, in pointing one another's kids to the gospel. I don't cast the future generations away and invite them into your life so that your thanksgiving and your praise and, and, and your worship of God sends a message to them about his faithfulness. It instructs them so that not only does God's faithfulness to people go on through all generations, but also so that people's awareness of God's faithfulness goes on through all generations. His faithfulness will be there. But will the coming generations acknowledge it? Will they know of it? Will they know of it because of our thanksgiving and praise to God and making it clear to them? Will the sounds and, and activities of our thankful praise compel the coming generations to take heed to the God who we offer this praise to? Do our lives testify that there's a good God with never-ending love and a good gospel where this love is clearly seen? Do our lives testify that the reason we should offer thanksgiving and praise is because we can offer these things in Christ? That the reason we should enter his spiritual gates, his spiritual courts, his presence, is because we can enter through Christ? Do our lives send that message to the coming generations? You know, sending that message doesn't guarantee that people will be saved, but it does set them up and give them a greater chance to. When we provide a clearer picture of who God is, that, 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 that picture is sent to the coming generations, and we can pray that God will use the picture from our lives to compel them to say, hey, that God is faithful, and so I want to follow him. And so might we be a people that are faithful to send this message there was an old Christian tradition where churches would have the doors to the sanctuary be painted red. This is a tradition because somewhere along the way, somebody figured it'd be a good weekly reminder to those who come to the gathering that the way they could come, the way they could enter, the way they could be a part of God's people, experience God's presence, was through the red blood of Christ. And I got to tell you, church, the doors to Pioneer Sanctuary may not be painted red, but we still enter in the exact same way. The reason this invitation stands, the reason we can read Psalm 100 as an active invitation for our lives today, 
to allow us to, to worship God with thanksgiving and praise, to, to make us a part of God's people, to grant us God's presence, is because there's one who went before us. He already had uninhibited access to the presence of God. He lived a life of undisrupted thanksgiving and praise. And he's willing to share all of that with us. The gospel teaches us that 2,000 years ago, the goodness and never-ending love of God was most clearly seen when Jesus Christ climbed the hill of Calvary and was willingly stretched out on a cross with his hands and feet nailed to the point of taking death for sinners. And then it was proven that his love actually can go on forever. Because even after being killed in such a gruesome way and buried in death, he took his life back up. Living again, showing, proving that he is a forever God who's forever good with forever love and forever life. And we should therefore repent of our sins and seek to offer him forever thanksgiving and forever praise. Friends, it is in the work of Christ that we most clearly see that God is good all the time. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that your goodness, your love has no end. And what more reason do we need to praise you than that? When we think about who we truly are and who you truly are and the fact that you still love us, the fact that you're still good to us, we should be overwhelmed at the thought of your mercy and grace. And so I pray that you would keep being good to us. Help us to have eyes that see your goodness, to have hearts that discern and recognize your faithful love. And then would you, by the power of your spirit, lead us to worshipful praise and thanksgiving of your name. We want to bless your name. We know that you've given us reason to. Pray that you continue to and help us to see it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.